Let me ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Today we want to take another step in this study of Genesis. If you were with us last week, you know that last Sunday morning we wrestled with a couple of lessons taught and implications found in the genealogy that's recorded in chapter 5. In short, we considered from kind of a 30,000-foot view two big ideas. We saw the consequence of sin and God's grace to the undeserving. We read down through a major portion of that genealogy and we saw a pattern that revealed these things to us and we kind of did a flyover of some of the verses here in chapter 6, but really, as I said, it was kind of a 30,000-foot view. We'd be backed out and looked at these things. This morning, we come to the opening verses of chapter 6. It's a chapter that really zeroes in on and addresses these same subjects with a far uh, greater specificity as it makes much of these realities. You know, friends, history is full of people and events that have often and consistently been described as pure evil. You read the news, you hear a newscast, it tells the story of some atrocity, and it's not uncommon to hear them throw in the phrase, this is just pure evil. Some have suggested that the purest expression of evil in history was the Holocaust, in which as many as six million Jews were slaughtered by Nazi forces under the racist and raging leadership of Adolf Hitler. Others have suggested that King Leopold II's 23-year reign of terror over the Congo, in, in which more than 10 million Africans were massacred, is among the most evil atrocities in history. For others, names like Caligula, Nero, Ivan the Terrible, Joseph Stalin, Jack the Ripper, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, Fidel Castro, Kim Jong-il, still send shivers up and down people's spines. When they just stop for a moment to think of the atrocities done by rulers, murderers alike. And I think that most of us would like to think that this kind of evil, this kind of wickedness is an anomaly or a rarity in humanity. After all, we live in a day when our world would have us believe that mankind is truly and basically good. We're all good. There's a few bad ones among us, but we're all good. Many in our day go as far as to argue that society or environment is what corrupts people to make them turn evil. 
But wickedness, wickedness does not come from within. It's thrust upon us. In other words, the common sentiment of today's society would argue that none of us are personally or ultimately culpable for the wrongs we do. Rather, we're we're simply the product of our environment. We're not evil. We're not wicked, and we have names, and we have history to point to to prove it, right? They're evil. We're not. But friends, we need to be very clear. The Bible tells a very different story about humanity. And about the individuals who make it up. To begin with, I just want to read down through the first eight verses of Genesis 6 this morning. I want to read the text. I want us to hear the language of what's here. I want us to hear God's assessment of the people He created When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the Son of God, sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, that animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we noted last time, many read a text like this one and only see a genealogy of sorts. They, they see a, a text to be debated, discussed, and disagreed about. And often they miss the point. Why is this here? Friends, I would argue that there's more for us to glean from this passage than just a bit of a genealogy or just a bit of a topic for discussion. 
I want you to think with me for a moment. What is here? There's three big ideas, I think, in the text. We'll, We'll get to some of the debatable stuff in a minute. Why is this here? Well, I tell you there's three things here. First of all, I want you to make sure you see this. I want you to see the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man. Secondly, I want you to see the holiness of God. And finally, I think this text is here to tell us about the marvel of mercy. The marvel of mercy. Before we get to the main thrust of the passage, we need to address the elephant in the room, so to speak. Some of you are going to recognize the fact that the opening verses of this text contain some of the most discussed and debated verses in the whole Bible. I find it fascinating that some of the most debated verses come in a text that is intended to actually teach us one of the most foundational lessons, and it's often missed here. Commentators Walvert and Zook have actually described this passage this way. They write, this section's details have been the subject of endless debate. Endless debate. Look back at verses uh, 1 and 2 and then verse 4 with me. You'll see the language that we're talking about when we read, uh, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took the, uh, as their wives any that they chose. Verse 4 talks about the Nephilim and the sons of God coming in, taking wives and having children. And typically, thoughtful students of the text have three burning questions in their minds when it comes to this passage of Scripture. The first question often asked is this, who were the sons of God? Verse 2. Who were the Nephilim? Verse 4. And, and where did these guys come from? Like, what are we talking about? Where, where did the Nephilim come from? As I've already noted, historically, the people of God have been all over the map when it comes to how they answer these questions. And to be perfectly honest, I have personally shifted some over time as I've studied the text of Scripture myself as to how exactly I answer these questions. There are various answers to be given. And the fact of the matter, friends, if the Bible were abundantly plain on these things, guess what? There'd be no debate. There'd be no debate if these were abundantly clear. But we're not talking about debates that have been going on for decades. We're talking about debates that have been going on for centuries. At the end of the day, I think we each must determine that what we believe about disputed matters. Okay, so texts that are disputed, what we believe about disputed matters is rooted, we need to make sure that what we believe about them is rooted in the text of Scripture rather than grounding our thinking on some other basis. You say, what are you talking about? Well, friends, let me just say this. It's far too easy for us to dismiss something that the text may say because it makes us uncomfortable, because it clashes with some aspect of our worldview, because it just doesn't seem to make sense to us. Maybe it's too supernatural. Maybe it's just hard to believe for some other reason entirely. But we read it. And we dismiss it for some reason. This has been done throughout history by many who would say they are students of Scripture. Can we just be clear about this? 
Truth is not determined by how we feel about a matter. Truth is not determined by how we feel. And truth is not determined by what we would like it to be. No, truth is determined by what God says about a matter. And our job is to come under what God says. I'd say it this way, our job is to do the very best that we possibly can to make sense of all that God says on a matter so that we bring ourselves humbly into line with His Word in all matters of our belief, our thought, and our practice. I've said it this way before, our job is not to become masters of this, but to be mastered by this. And There's a big difference between those two thinking we've mastered it or being mastered by it. Immensely different. So friend, everyone wants to know then, okay, you've been talking around the subject for five minutes now. How do we answer the questions about the sons of God and the, the Nephilim? Let me just say this. If you think I'm going to put to rest centuries of debate, I'm not, okay? I don't have some discovery to give you that is different from what has been discussed and debated by by good students of Scripture for ages. But I I do want to just quickly in this sermon reference a few things, Lord willing, and the next hour I want to come back to some of these things in more detail. So stick around. We'll talk a little bit more about these things the next hour. But let me just address the question, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Throughout history, church, uh, throughout church history, I should say, there have been uh, uh, three main uh, explanations offered for who these may be. Some have argued that the sons of God were fallen angels or demonic beings. Some have argued that the sons of God were the, the sons of Seth, who intermarried with the daughters of Cain. Still others have suggested that the sons of God were perhaps human kings wanting to build harems for themselves. Or you might find a variation of these in some form or another, but mainly these three ideas. For those of you dying to know, Pastor Joe, how about you? Well, I tend to agree with the first of these three. The first of these three. Uh, Taking into account the way that the rest of Scripture uses the language and the context of the passage and its content that's here, I believe that Moses was referring to angelic or demonic beings leaving their rightful God-designed place and engaging in wrong God-defying activities. That just seems to be what the Scriptures are saying if you take the whole of the text of Scripture. If you want to hear more, like I said, stick around. We'll talk more in the next hour about that. But I, I do want to make that give you that answer for those that are just, you're not going to hear the rest of the sermon unless I at least let you in on that. Uh, who were the Nephilim? Where'd they come from? Is the next question that we really have here too combined. Uh, I'll just address it this way. Um, once again, there's a number of ideas on this. In fact, it may be a more difficult question than the first. Some have argued that these were mighty men of old who existed before and after the sons of God married the daughters of men and were therefore not the product of their physical, what we might call unholy union between them. Others, though, have suggested that these men were giants who were the product of this unholy union between demonic beings who indwelt human men, married human women, produced superhuman offspring. 
There's discussion as to what exactly is going on here. On this point, I have to confess, I'm far less confident in what to make of this. There's more study to be done for sure. But truth be told, they're convincing linguistic arguments for the first. I think they're convincing textual, broader biblical arguments to be made for the second. Once again, I'd encourage you to stick around. We'll look at some passages and talk more about that in the next hour. Before we move on, though, I I do want to sound a couple of warnings. And I want to say this, because it's a great chance in a text like this, a disputed, debated text, to to talk about this. I I want to say this. Friends, when we come to debatable matters in the text, there is always potential for unwarranted and unnecessary division among brethren. There's always the temptation for this to happen. And we have to guard ourselves against this. One author who has written extensively on the subject of the Nephilim and the sons of God has uh, stated his position on the very plainly. He, He takes a very strong stance. And he ended his book about these things with this well worded warning. He said, many Christians will disagree with my conclusions, and I have no problem with that. Although the sons of God and the Nephilim can make for fascinating discussions for many people, these conversations should never be cause for strife or division between Christians. And yet, if we're not careful, we can make what we do with debatable matters kind of a test of orthodoxy. I want us to be careful. In fact, the author actually in that same paragraph where I took that quote said he was told by one who disagreed with his position on the Nephilim that he would likely go to hell for his position. How quickly our fallen hearts being addressed in this very text rise to the surface when we find people that don't see it just like we do in something debated for centuries. I just want us to be careful. As I said, when we come to debatable matters, there's, there's always potential for this kind of division. Secondly, I, I, I want to say this to you. When we come to intriguing subjects like these, it is always tempting to be distracted from the main point of the passage. As if somehow the main thing Moses was writing about in Genesis 6 was the sons of God and the Nephilim when it seems as if it's actually passing comments to clarify some things to move on to the big subject at hand. I think we need to be careful about a temptation to take up a minor part of a passage and try to make it a major part of something that distracts us from the big point. So I just want to caution us about this. I think this is an enormous danger even with the subject at hand. It's interesting that historically the Jews were given to myths, Paul warns about, and to genealogies like the extra-biblical book of Enoch. That book took up the subject of these very things. In fact, it begins to add a ton of details and ideas and suggestions to what exactly is going on in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6. In fact, a number of insightful Hebrew scholars have warned that attempts to expand on the very few details that are included in Scripture about these things, 
about the sons of God of the Nephilim have led many to come to conclusions that actually deny the clear teaching of the biblical text. In fact, I think this is why Paul sounded the warning that he did to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In fact, uh, some scholars believe that his warning in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is actually a direct answer to the things being said in the book of Enoch about this passage. Paul writes to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. People were coming to different conclusions, actually denying biblical teaching, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote what? Speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain, empty, pointless discussions. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Wow. It's like Paul saying, miss the point much, right? Like, like they literally missed the point of the Scriptures to debate about the stuff we all can at best guess about. And he says, be careful that you don't find yourself so wrapped up in the stuff we're guessing about that you miss the stuff that we must hold firm and I know we all can sit back and go, I'll be the exception. That won't happen to me. But inspired Scripture actually had to sound a warning because there were plenty in the New Testament apparently who it was happening to. And if we think we're not in danger of that, my friends, I think we're the first step down the road toward that danger. He says, don't miss the point of the Scripture." In fact, I think this is why the second half of a statement that I cited earlier from Walvard and Zook is important. Because writing about this passage in Genesis 6, Walvard and Zook said this, This section's details have often been the subject of endless debates. Notice, often leaving the obvious untouched. We want to debate the first four verses, but miss the point of the passage if we're not careful. So brothers and sisters, the last thing we ever want to do when studying the Scriptures is miss the main point of the passage. So there is room for discussion, and I said we'll talk more about it in the next hour. But I want to warn us. I want to, I want to sound the warning. Don't get distracted from the big truths we must all hold firmly while discussing things that scholars have tried for ages to discern and are still working at it. Okay? So let's get to what we talked about earlier. We said that there are three big points to the truth that's here, and I want us to get to them. So let's consider, first of all, what do we see? We see the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man. As we noted at the outset, friends, there, there is something in the heart of fallen man that seeks 
for ways to pass the blame onto others rather than taking personal responsibility for our own rebellious uh, sin against God. The fact of the matter is that man has been doing so since the fall. This isn't new. We saw this in in God's interaction with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. You remember this. The Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, right? He comes to the woman, what have you done? The serpent. Look, look, we've been passing a buck a long time as humans. We're always looking for someone else to take the blame for our words, our actions, our thoughts, our choices. Clearly, the natural bent of the fallen heart is to pass the buck of culpability for sin, to pass it to someone else. And as I just mentioned to you, according to to scholars who know far more about the extra-biblical materials than I, the book of Enoch was actually an earthly attempt to blame human sin on fallen angels. It was an attempt to say, hey, we're not really at fault. It's the demons. It's the angels. If they hadn't come down here and done this stuff, we'd all be okay. This is a big attempt, it seems, by many to take something and point the blame at someone else. Clearly, there's something in the human heart that does not want to let the book of Genesis stand on its own two feet and plainly declare that man, in fact, is guilty of and culpable for his sin. Let's not forget the fact that Paul laid the blame for sin entering the world squarely at the feet of a man. Certainly there was temptation brought. Certainly there was one who tried to lead this way. But listen, Paul said in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We need to be careful as we study these things that we don't find our own hearts doing what many have done as they've wrestled with these very questions. And all of this, I think, reinforces one of the dangers of going too far down the rabbit hole of debate surrounding the first four verses of Genesis 6. You see, if we're not careful to guard our hearts and to let the Scriptures say what they do, we may ultimately miss the fact that the whole point of our passage for this morning is to declare the unmistakable, unavoidable terms that man is wicked and guilty before God. Man is. Yes, it talks about the sons of God, and it talks about the daughters of men, and it talks about the offspring, and it talks about the Nephilim, but I want you to see what's woven right into those verses. Verse 3, what do we read? Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Where's the consequence for what's going on on the earth? Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The point of the passage is to make clear that man was guilty before God of his wickedness. So you're reminded of last week, friends, sin defined most basically is rebellion. To quote the Apostle John, sin is lawlessness. The Creator speaks and man denies and man disobeys. In other words, sin is choosing to go my own way, do my own thing, rather than submit to the authority and the command of my Creator. And it is this rebellious wickedness that Moses was highlighting in our text. 
Don't miss the way that verse 5 points out, friends, the severity of sin. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great. It points out the extent of sin. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. It spread around the whole humanity. It talks about the pervasiveness of sin. Notice that every, he's going to talk about thought now. I mean, this is every part of him. It talks about the depth of his sin, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart. And this is how deep it goes. Sin is not a surface problem. Sin is a heart problem. Murder doesn't happen because they made you. It's because you hate, Scriptures say. We have to understand how the Scriptures address these things. What's the depth of our sin? And finally, it actually addresses the consistency of sin. Notice, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I, I don't know how you read this and get, a, get away from that. I mean, literally, you have to completely rewrite the Genesis worldview to blame this on somebody else. But there are people trying to do this all the time. Sin's not my problem. I sin because it's somebody else's problem. F- follow this, friends. What is, what is God saying in the text? He is telling us that sin pollutes every person in humanity. And he is telling us that sin pollutes every part of each human. No part of you is untouched by sin. No part of me is untouched by sin. I mean, this is the reality, really is the idea of total depravity as we think about that doctrine as it's stated. What what does, uh, total depravity does not mean That sinners are as bad as they can possibly be. What it means is that there is no part of our humanity that is left untouched by sin. Therefore, we have to understand, friends, that the main point of this passage is to make much of the wickedness of man. It's all over this passage. Not only does it tell us about the wickedness of man, secondly, we, we see here the holiness of God. It's interesting to note the fact that our text never addresses the holiness of God directly. It never, never uses those terms. Instead, our passage magnifies the holiness of God by describing His deep, visceral, grief-laden, judgment-meeting response that He had toward the sin He saw in man. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Now notice, notice, man was corrupt to his heart. And that corruption grieved God to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now for a moment, for those still reasoning with how historically people have kind of taken this passage to mean man's not really responsible, demons are, why didn't God say, I'm just going to wipe out the angelic beings? If the point of this was to 
pass the buck of responsibility. Now, the point of the passage is man is responsible, culpable for his sinfulness. Don't miss the deeply emotive words that are used here. Regretted. Grieved. Sorry. Clearly, God's response to sin is not a positive one. And His response to sin is not a passive one. How many times do you and I find that if we're not careful, we can go in any number of directions with our responses to sin? Oh, we, we want to pride ourselves, I think, if we're not careful. We want to pride ourselves because we we're at least not cheering it on, right? We don't have a positive response to it, but how about the just, eh. That's just America. That's just what it means to be human. I mean, we all do it, right? It's the shrug that concerns me. Does it concern you? The passiveness toward our own sin and the sins of others. God was not positive toward nor passive toward the sins of man. The text is clear about the fact that the wickedness of man grieves our holy God to his heart. And friends, the wickedness of man invites God's just and righteous wrath. No wonder Isaiah, or no one of the scriptures throughout the scriptures, Isaiah, Habakkuk, and elsewhere, make plain what they do about God. You remember the language of Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said to hear us talk today, merciful, merciful, merciful. Gracious, gracious, gracious. Patient, Patient, patient. Now what do they praise? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Habakkuk chapter 1, we read, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. No wonder the Scriptures command God's people as they do. Leviticus 19, we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or Psalm 96 and verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him. All the earth. 
Ephesians 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve Him. 1 Peter 1, repeating what we saw in Leviticus, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Friends, there is so much more that we could say about the holiness of God and we certainly will as we move ahead in our study of this book. For today, I I just want you to see That God's righteous wrath against sin is actually rooted in the essence of who He is as our unimpeachably holy Creator and King. It seems as if in our day the call for holiness has fallen out of vogue. You preach grace all you want. You preach mercy all you want. You preach kindness and acceptance all you want. But you preach holiness and you're a legalist. May I remind you, we're studying the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, when God saw the wickedness in His creatures, it grieved Him to His heart so much so that He said, I will blot them out. And I have to ask, has He changed His mind about sin? Has he changed his mind about the wickedness he sees in us? No, my friends, that is why I find as we study this passage that that Moses is going somewhere. We said there's the wickedness of man and there is the holiness of God. But thirdly, I want you to see the marvel of mercy. Let's just be very, very clear about this. The Creator God would have been completely within His rights as the Holy One and the Maker of all to do just what He said He wanted to do in verse 7, blot out man whom He had created from the face of the land. It's the Maker. Do with what He made as He wishes. But friends, we must remember the fact that God had made a promise In other words, he had given his word. Back in Genesis 3.15, he was very clear, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. 
So you've seen in our previous study of that text, friends, this means that even as He cursed the serpent, the Creator God promised to send one into humanity who would ultimately destroy the enemy of our souls. And put simply, this verse is a prophetic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come, defeat the enemy, and save His own from sin, wrath, and the grave. This is a glorious promise. This also means that had God wiped out humanity completely, He would not have kept His promise to send an offspring of the woman to be the serpent-crushing Savior of His people. He told you, we're, we're tracking the line. Where's the offspring? And all of this is what makes the final verse in our text for this morning shine so brilliantly when it declares the grace and the mercy of God to a sinner named Noah. It's the point of the passage. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. and The holy God of glory was right to be wrathful toward it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we spent the bulk of our time last week celebrating the grace of God in these passages. I'm, I'm not going to drag this point out at this moment. But let us simply note the fact, friends, that it is just like our God to grant mercy when judgment is deserved. In fact, Right here in the shadow of His dark decree of judgment in verse 7, we find an amazing glimmer of hope. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Those of you who know the Scriptures know, friends, that the gospel implications of what we've studied this morning are unmistakably plain We'll see more of it as we study the story of Noah. In fact, we're going to jump into the next section next week, Lord willing. And when we do, we're going to find that it's the next section of Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. His story is an amazing story of grace. I want you to think about it, friends. As fallen human beings, we are sinners deserving of wrath as well. But God, in His mercy, is a sinner-saving sovereign. And the fact that when what we deserve is wrath, God makes a way of salvation is very, very good news for wicked, rebellious sinners like us. So I was studying again this week this text and reading down through the paragraphs and the flow and realizing where the, the actual breaks are in the original language. It astounds me that even as God is bearing down with weight on the wickedness of man, He's shining the light of hope in His grace and His mercy in the final words as He prepares us for the next part of the story. And I want to say to us, friends, let's not lose sight of why this is here as we discuss or even debate the debatable parts of the text. 
Because that's why this is here, that we would see God in his holiness and man in his sinfulness, but God in his grace and in his mercy. That's what this text is about. And we can't afford to forget that. So to the end that we would walk in these ways, let's pray. And we'll get back to some more discussion in the next hour, all right? Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Father, we are amazed by grace again. And we ask that you would take your word and that you would humble us with it. Father, I think that we are like humanity. We are prone to looking for our scapegoat. The one we can blame shifts the buck of responsibility for our, our wickedness. Father, I pray that you would use your word to show us that even, even when there are other things going on, there, there are others who are sinning around or even to us, it does not free us from responsibility before you. So I pray that we might see you for who you are, as we do see ourselves for who we are in light of that and run to Christ and hide ourselves in him. We ask for your help to see the truth and to walk in it. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.